Please go ahead and take your Bible and find Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6 this morning. For those of you who are visiting with us this morning, welcome. It's our custom here to preach systematically, verse by verse, through a book of the Bible. And we find ourselves today in a very sobering, disturbing, and violent section of Scripture. I try not to be the doom and gloom preacher, though some may think otherwise. There are encouraging parts of Scripture. There are parts of Scripture that lift us up and remind us of the love of God and the grace and mercy of Christ, but this is not one of them. But I fear God more than man, so I am not compelled to skip it. With that said, will you you follow along with me as I read Mark 6, verses 14 to 29? This is the true inspired word of God. And King Herod heard of it. For his name had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he is Elijah. And others were saying, he is a prophet. Like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but used to enjoy listening to him. A strategic day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately, she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison And brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about this, 
they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. The title of the message today is The Cost of Being Righteous. The Cost of Being Righteous. How many of you have ever heard of a man named Polycarp? Few. Polycarp was what we would call an apostolic father. In other words, he was a direct disciple of John. Polycarp rose to the position of Bishop of Smyrna. Smyrna should sound familiar to you, right? Smyrna is listed in Revelation 1 to 3 in that list of seven churches that Christ through John wrote to. Polycarp was the bishop or the head pastor or whatever you want to call him of Smyrna. He was a revered man. He was a he was a man who was devoted to Christ until he reached the age of 86. There was a growing persecution of Christians and uh, the Roman government had him arrested. He dispatched soldiers to go to John's, excuse me, Polycarp's place of hiding. And tradition has it that when the soldiers got there, Polycarp had his wife cook them a meal. The soldiers escorted Polycarp to the proconsul. And due to his old age and gentle disposition, the proconsul urged him and said, all you have to do is say, Caesar is Lord, and, and throw a little incense to Caesar's statue. Polycarp refused. Here's what he said. Eighty-six years I have served Christ, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Upon speaking those words, he was bound to a pyre. It was set aflame, and he was stabbed with a spear. Only because he loved Jesus. Polycarp was not the first martyr. He definitely was not the last to be killed for being a righteous warrior for the truth. Years before Polycarp's execution, 11 of the 12 apostles were martyred. All but John. And before them, John the Baptist the forerunner of the Messiah, the last Old Testament prophet, the greatest man ever to be born, according to Jesus. John the Baptist did something that costed him his life. And it was nothing extraordinary. All he did was speak the truth. What we're introduced today, what we're introduced to today is the tale of John's martyrdom. 
we are introduced to John uh, in the beginning of Mark. You remember in the beginning of Mark's gospel, Mark chapter one, verses four to six, says John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. All of the country of Judea was going out to him and all of the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Verse seven. And he was preaching and saying, after me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's why John is called the forerunner of Christ, because he came first baptizing in water, preaching a message. But Christ came and immersed believers into himself through the spirit. Chapter one, verse 14. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching. John had been taken into custody. Why? By whom? Well, we don't get the answer to those questions until today. Mark 6 gives us the details of the events surrounding John's arrest and ultimate death. He disappears from the scene until now. The section recounts the unjust murder of a prophet of God. And the point that Mark wants us to see is crystal clear. It's this. Truth must be spoken at all costs. Truth must be spoken no matter the cost. Mark 6, 14 to 29 is divisible into four parts. The haunting memory, the costly confrontation, the dramatic demand, and the gruesome execution. And as we unpack those four main points this morning, I hope you'd be willing as a disciple of Christ to count the cost of being righteous. Let's look at the haunting memory in verse 14. Herod the king. King Herod. This is Herod Antipas. This is the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, if you may remember, was the one who slaughtered the male babies in Bethlehem in an attempt to kill Jesus. The Herod in view here, in Mark 6, is his son. Herod Antipas, he became the head or the tetrarch of the territories of Perea and Galilee, and he held that position for 40 years. You've heard the saying, like father, like son, right? Well, Herod Antipas was just as immoral and corrupt and power hungry as his daddy. He was known as being a womanizer, a drunkard, an addict of pleasure, and a man who lived for political gain. This is the Herod Antipas that John had the audacity to confront. 
this Herod heard of it, that is the public ministry of Christ, the preaching proclamation of the gospel. Goes on to say, for his name, that is Jesus, had become well known. People were saying John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. They thought Jesus was John the Baptist. Why? Because they didn't know Jesus. They were ignorant. Others said, no, he's Elijah. You guys remember who Elijah is? One of the great prophets in the Old Testament. He was taken into heaven on a chariot of fire. Remember the tale that he's probably most known for, especially from Sunday school on Mount Carmel? Remember that story where, where on, on Mount Carmel, Elijah builds an altar. And in competition with the false prophets of Baal, calls down fire from heaven. The fire consumes the construction that Elijah built while Baal did nothing. Now, why, why, why would some think that Jesus was Elijah? Well, it's because of Malachi 4, verse 5. A prophecy that, that, that one, a prophet, will come in the spirit of Elijah. Truthfully, we know that the one who fulfilled that prophecy was actually John the Baptist. So they thought Jesus was John the Baptist, risen from the dead. They thought he was Elijah. But some were saying, verse 15, that, that he was one of the prophets of old. What does that mean? Well, think of what the prophets of old did. What were they sent to do? They were sent to preach a message of condemnation and restoration. A prophet of old was one who says, thus says the Lord. They come preaching the law of God. And guess what? Isn't that what our Lord Jesus did? He came preaching the gospel of God. He did come preach the law. And he preached the law to help people see that they could not be saved through the law. But as Paul had written later, that we had not come to know sin but through the law. So the law is a crucial part of the whole gospel message. So... Verse 16, Herod's hearing all of these rumors that this guy, Jesus, going around healing, preaching, teaching. He hears it might be John the Baptist. And that's not a good thought to him. Verse 16, but when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, that is, he kept repeating, he kept repeating. He like, he like couldn't get it out of his mind. John, whom I beheaded. That's emphatic in the original. John, whom I, I myself beheaded, has risen. Now, this is no confession of sin here. He's not trying to get right with God. He's not owning up to it. yourself in Herod's shoes. You unjustly kill a man of God and you're superstitious enough to think that he's back from the dead? What would go through your mind? He's coming to get me. 
Herod here is fearing vengeance. Justice. He also views the thought of John being risen from the dead as a threat to his political status. So he's haunted by this memory. Who could blame him? Now in verses 17 to 29, Mark takes us backwards. You guys ever seen a movie where at the beginning of the movie, it shows the really dramatic crescendo of the whole story, right? Like a murder or some really dramatic point. And then they bring you back to the beginning. You know what I'm talking about? That's what's happening here. We're going to go back in time. And we're going to learn about the events and circumstances and drama surrounding John the Baptist's last days. We've seen the haunting memory. Now let's look at the costly confrontation. Verse 17. For, now just a word on that. For introduces, introduces an explanation. So whenever you see the word for, which you will see, Repeated in this narrative, it's just explaining what was previously stated. So going going deeper, it's like peeling back a layer in the narrative. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison. John the Baptist was out in the wilderness preaching the kingdom of God and Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But that's not all John was preaching. Herod would not dispatch a band of of his own troops to go arrest this crazy man dunking people in a river. It's personal. Commentators say that John was most likely calling out Herod in his public preaching. That is why Herod had him arrested and bound in his dungeon. John was not thrown in a quaint little cell in the palace. He was not in a house arrest. He was stored in a deep, dark dungeon underneath Herod's party house. He was put in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. There you go. That's Herod's beef with John. Herod did not like being called out or confronted for doing something so clearly vile. Stealing his brother's wife. Not only did he steal his brother's wife, he also discarded his own wife. He was also married at this time, but that did not stop it. One preacher said that this is white trash at its worst. Stealing another man's wife. Just because you can. How wicked. 
Verse 18, for John had been saying, again, it's the same tense. He had been saying multiple times publicly. Now he gets to say it face to face. He says, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Listen. There is a time, brothers and sisters, for a gentle discussion. Maybe your personality is such that you want to take some out to coffee. You want to have some small talk. You don't want to dive right in because it's awkward. There's a time for a softer, more patient approach, of course. In fact, that's probably the most necessary. But... There is time for a scathing rebuke. That's what this is. John the Baptist does not pull punches, does he? He does not say, King, sir, let's reason together. Let's go for a walk. Let let us open up the scripture and see what it says. How do you interpret this? It is not lawful. What does he mean by that? According to what law? Old Testament law. And here's another observation. And this is important because I hear this argument a lot. I hear, well, we cannot hold unbelievers accountable to what the scripture says. In other words, we can't expect unbelievers to act like Christians. That's baloney. The law of God is universal. It is evil for me to take my brother's wife. Amen? It's equally evil for my neighbor to do the same. See? Clearly, John the Baptist approaches a king, a pagan, and says, you are not doing what's lawful. According to Leviticus chapter 18, verse 16, it says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. Sin. Well, that rebuke offended the woman a lot more. Look at verse 19. Herodias had a grudge against him because she had also been indicted by implication. A rebuke to Herod is also a rebuke to Herodias. She was so mad. She was so filled with rage. That verse 19 says she wanted him put to death. But she couldn't. Why? Because Herod protected John. Why would Herod protect him after he issued such a scathing rebuke? Look at verse 20. Herod was afraid of John. Herod was afraid of John. You see that word afraid in your Bible? 
in the original, in the original, it's phobeo, which from which you get the word phobia. What is phobia? I mean, we're here that ad nauseum now, don't we? Everything's homophobic now, right? Everything's xenophobic. We've been butchering that term, phobia. Which so you know what it means. We all know what it means. What's it mean? Fear. Well, in the Bible, it's used in two different contexts. It's used in reference to God. The fear of the Lord is beginning of knowledge, right? So phobos, phobeo, fear is, is good in some sense. We should have a reverential awe, a reverential fear of God. And in the same way, humans have the same attitude towards others. Now, I'm not going to go on this tangent, I promise, because I don't want to detract from the point, but it's, it's the same word that Paul used in Ephesians 5, verse 33, to speak of what? Wives, see to it that you respect your husbands. It's the word phobos, fear. But it doesn't mean terrifying it doesn't mean to be afraid like the disciples are when they see jesus walking on the water it's a respectful attitude a reverential attitude that's why herod protected john because he had a reverential fear for john and the text tells us why look at it knowing that he was a righteous and holy man herod revered john for his character John the Baptist was a righteous and holy man. In other words, John could not be bought. He could not be swayed. He could not be silenced for any reason. Even a man like Herod respected that. Isn't it interesting? That even unholy men ungodly men, they will respect you for being holy and righteous. They might like you. They might be the first to stab you in the back, but they will respect you. End of verse 20. And when he heard him, he was perplexed, very perplexed, and he used to enjoy listening to him. Why would this pagan Enjoy listening to bold, prophetic preaching. You want to know why? Because the word of God does not return void. That's what bold, convicting, biblical preaching does. It perplexes people, and it makes them curious. You've seen the haunting memory, the costly confrontation, now the dramatic demand. Verse 21. A strategic day came when Herod, and on, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his lords. Those are the political leaders, the military commanders, the high-ranking officers, and the leading men of Galilee, the social leaders. Now, a little bit about these birthday parties. These parties... for excuses, for uninhibited debauchery. 
drunkenness, gluttony, and immorality. The rankest kind. If I was a men's retreat, I'd probably be more detailed, but you guys get the picture, right? (laughs) And because of this background, we can see clearly what happens next. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in, her name was Salome, and danced. She pleased Herod and did her guest. What kind of dance do you think this was? Well, it wasn't some type of innocent, juvenile, happy dance. This was an erotic dance. It would be comparable to a modern strip tease. She was half naked. This is his own stepdaughter. And you see the effect it had, it pleased him. That doesn't mean that he was in a good mood afterwards. It means that he was stimulated. It's a euphemism for you know what. This dance was so erotic and showy that it also pleased his dinner guests. So, because of the effect this little dance had, he said to the girl, ask me whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. Whatever you ask, I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom. Wow! She must have been a good dancer, huh? But we know that he was in a drunken stupor. And men, when they're in a drunken stupor, sexually stimulated, they're not that smart, are they? So this is a hyperbolic bragging statement. Herod Antipas did not have the authority to give away half the kingdom. He wasn't in charge, really. He was given delegated authority to keep the peace. By whom? By Rome. By Caesar. What do you think of this little man, Herod, tried to give away half of Caesar's kingdom? He would have found his head detached. But in the spur of the moment, in, in, in this, in this party-crazed atmosphere, he offers this girl anything she wants. And I would have loved to see his face. When he got the answer. Verse 24, she went, in, went out and asked her mother, What shall I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately, she came in a hurry. So she was wasting no time. I mean, it it shows just how red hot mad this Herodias lady was. How dead set she was on getting her vengeance. 
she came in a hurry and asked the king, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Man. Sounds extreme, doesn't it? Only because she was confronted. Only because her adultery was exposed. We've seen the haunting memory, the costly confrontation, the dramatic demand, and now, finally, the gruesome execution. Look at verse 26. And although the king was very sorry, he was very sorry. And let me just step aside for a minute. You know what being very sorry does for you? Pretty much nothing. There is a godly sorrow, and there is worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow is what we need. Godly sorrow admits that we've sinned against God. To confess our sin, say the same thing that God says about our sin. That That should make us feel guilty. We should have remorse when we sin, don't we? But then there's... Ungodly sorrow, worldly sorrow, false sorrow. And that's the kind of sorrow that forces you to only think about what you are going to lose. I counseled a man a few years ago who wanted advice from me about how to pursue a romantic relationship with another man's wife. He wanted to know. He wanted to know from a chaplain that 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 he really wasn't that much in the wrong. You know, you can't help who you love, right? And uh, I said, "Do you realize the consequences of this if you pursue? You're probably going to get your your face smashed in for one. Number two, you're going to break someone's family." And then you're going to live with the rest of that guilt for the rest of your life. So stop. He didn't expect that answer. And he walked away like the rich young ruler. But sorry. Because he realized that the implications of my counseling was going to end that potential relationship. He didn't feel sorry that he was offending God. He didn't feel sorry that he was offending his wife and that wife's husband. It's also a kind of sorrow that Judas had. Remember Judas? When the guilt of selling his master, his savior, for a meager price, the guilt consumed him, and he went out and he hung himself. Worldly sorrow. Have you ever had worldly sorrow? Have you ever been caught or convicted about sin and all you could think of what you would lose? Other than how it offends your loving master? Pick back up in verse 26. 
Yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. So to save face, to save his pride, to avoid public humiliation, Herod gives the girl her request, even though he knows it's wrong. But immediately, verse 27, the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison. Now, as I was teaching this to my children last night, um, Annie asked a very insightful question. She said, how was he beheaded? And even in my study, I didn't think to ask that question. And I searched and I couldn't find any any background on that. It's, it's likely that was, he was just decapitated with a sword. Um, that was a common way of execution. If, if you guys are Greek experts in uh, Greek history, you can let me know if you know anything else. But the text doesn't tell us how. It just says that he lost his head. With one swing of the sword... John the Baptist was brought to glory. He remained faithful. He did not compromise. He did what God, what God had called him to do. He was the first Christian martyr. And then, in verse 28, sure enough, His head is brought to the girl on a plate. A simple kitchen dish. Now here's the interesting question. Why? Why ask to have a severed head brought to you? And doesn't that just sound gross? Again, we have to kind of remove ourselves from our really comfortable, comfortable, soft, liberal culture. Remember, public execution was part of life, right? Common thieves, crucified, beheadings were common. With one word, King would say, off with his head. That's the culture that these men lived in. There's a side note. Reminding ourselves of the martyrs. You know, I don't I don't I don't like to talk about those things every now and then to get us down, to make us depressed. I'm not the guy that's going to stand up and say, hey, someone could come to your door and want to chop your head off. I'm not that kind of preacher. But I think, I really believe, as, as we remind ourselves of this history, number one, it really makes us grateful that we, that we live in a time in a country where we don't have to fear this. And number two, it makes me content. You know, we, we're worried about our next vacation. We're worried about our broken water heater. We're worried about the next advancement, whatever that may be, and so on, whatever the case is for you. 
but but these men and women, women were martyred too. They they were murdered by Rome and the Jews because they were simply living their Christian life. So 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 read Study the martyrs, Fox's Book of Martyrs. Study the reformers. Study, study all the Christians who were thrown into the Roman Colosseum and fed to the lions. Because their boldness also encourages us, does it not? Now, as I alluded to, this, this idea or practice of bringing someone's head on a platter, that was not also uncommon, believe it or not. Because... To bring someone's head on a platter to you, number one, was verification that the guy actually got killed. It verified the act. Number two, it was a trophy. Sent a message. So Herodias can hoist up that platter with this preacher's head on it and say, hey, you cross me, this will be you. You see? So in the same way, my children have trophies in their room to remind them of of something that happened. Perhaps some of you have trophies in your room from T-ball years. I don't know. The head on the platter served the same purpose. Now, as I close, a few points of application. Number one. I think we can learn from Herodias and Herod that sin will blind you or harden you. Herod was so close. He listened to the preaching of John. He was perplexed and he liked it. And he kept him safe. Yet he loved his sin too much and would not heed the preacher's voice. Or sin can harden you like a rock. Consider Herodias. She heard the same message, different response. Some folks hear the gospel, they hear the truth, and their response is hatred for the message. I remember when I was 19 years old, the first time I heard the gospel, I was fighting angry. Because the implication of the gospel is that those whom you love that died outside of Christ are what? They're in hell. So, in a lesser way, I think, I was hardened just like Herodias was. So beware of sin. Beware of your favorite sin. Because it will blind you to preaching, even to my preaching, or it will harden you and you'll become apostate. The second lesson, other than learn to kill your favorite sin, is to rebuke sin. Rebuke sin. John. Let's learn from John this morning. John was a fearless messenger, wasn't he? He had the willingness to confront sin even in the most powerful and threatening places. Now, there needs to be wisdom here, right? 
not necessarily your job to walk into your boss's office and call him a sinner. But maybe someday you might have the opportunity. It may not be your job to walk home to your mom and dad and say you're a sinner. But someday it might. You want to be a faithful Christian and a churchman? You will have to confront one another. You will have to call sin, sin to a sinner. If I sinned against my children, I hope you would love me enough to say, Heitman, what you are doing is not lawful. That's love. This idea that love accepts everything, love looks over everything, love never confronts, love never judges, that's false. That's worldly love. True love cares for the truth more than your own position. Thirdly, this is not your best life now. This is not the best it's going to be. Contrary to some popular preachers, God is not, he is not willing for us to live free of suffering. He is not willing for us to escape the persecution of the world. Remember that. Remember that. And the moment you're confronted with that bad theology of our best life is now, when you're confronted with the prosperity gospel and and the materialism, just remember John the Baptist. Remember Polycarp? Remember Tyndale? Who was burned alive for for translating the Bible so you could have it? But most of all, whom do we see that proves this life is not fair? It's not righteous. Our Lord, right? Our Lord was the only perfect man that ever lived, and they killed him. So the message today, it's a heavy one, and I've attempted to deliver it in a tone that's appropriate for the message. I pray that as we leave here today in fellowship at our picnic, talk, talk about these things. Ask yourself, how is this going to help you live your Christian life better as a result of these inspired words? May all of us go out, live our lives in the spirit of John the Baptist, be willing to rebuke sin, be willing to kill your favorite sin, And be willing to embrace the life that God has laid out for us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to to preach and to minister to these precious people. May we all learn and be humbled by this text. May we all speak the truth in love at the appropriate time to the appropriate people. 
May we all hate our sin and kill our favorite sin, which we all have. And Lord, may we always be mindful that this life is not the best life to come. We long for your coming. We long for the day when the new heavens and new earth come and and we can dwell with you free from sin and free from every evil thing. We thank you for this blessed hope we have. In Jesus' name, amen.